This episode is brought to you by Ethical Electric, who makes it fast and easy to switch to green, renewable energy for your home or office. Visit ethicalelectric.com slash best for details. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Friday Night Comedy, Counterspin, The Young Turks, Redacted Tonight, The Green News Report, Democracy Now!, and The David Pakman Show. I have been asked to speak to you about science, or to give it its correct technical name, so-called science. So-called science is an activity carried out by so-called scientists, shadowy, generally anonymous figures intent on one thing, the relentless pursuit of money. These so-called scientists, notorious for their lifestyles, their love of cutting-edge gadgetry and their trips to exotic locations are remorseless in their pursuit of the vast, almost incomprehensible sums of money at stake in the form of the huge, limitless pool of cash known as research grants. (laughs) These enormous sums are used to fund their frivolous trips to glaciers and ice packs, their luggage bursting with designer sweaters and padded anoraks, there to play with their boys' toys, drilling ice cores and sending balloons up into the atmosphere to measure carbon so-called dioxide. (laughs) The substance which so-called science ludicrously claims can warm the entire earth, despite it being just a tiny molecule consisting of just two oxygen atoms and one of carbon. These atoms themselves consisting largely of nothing, and yet, absurdly, these conveniently invisible so-called molecules are supposedly able to form an enormous duvet round the Earth. Self-evidently nonsense. Yet, this is the so-called theory that provides the pretext for the true purpose of so-called science, which is, of course, the wholesale transfer of research grants from taxpayers to university and state-sponsored so-called climatology departments. Fortunately, ladies and gentlemen, there are a few brave and gallant souls who have dedicated themselves to exposing so-called science. These few noble men and women, supported only by a few hundred million dollar donations from the (laughs) modest profits of hard-pressed oil and energy multinationals, have volunteered in exchange for mere salaries and free holidays to expose this so-called science for what it is. A systematic attempt to draw inferences from large-scale data gathering. And fearlessly to reveal the sinister web of atmospherics researchers, glaciologists and oceanographers who, communicating only through an impenetrable, heavily encrypted system of obscure journals and peer-reviewed research papers, (laughs) have constructed a conspiracy of such magnitude that it has taken in the Chinese government, the American government, the BBC, and 97% of all so-called scientists. It has not, of course, taken in the splendid Australians, who have been very fortunate, of course, because the propaganda ceased to be beamed in there after their latest heat wave was hot enough to melt all their satellite dishes. Would that we could all be so lucky. But to defeat this conspiracy, two things are important. Fortunately, firstly, The world of journalism and the media is mercifully mostly free of people 
brainwashed by degrees in so-called science. Many influential columnists and commentators have studied proper, useful subjects like classics, history, land economy or English literature and are easily able to dismantle the so-called statistical facts and measurements of science through their skill in rhetoric, sarcasm and editing. <laughs> Secondly, those who have studied a proper hard science, such as theoretical psychology, will know that human beings are predisposed to believe what they want to believe and that the job of scientists is to overcome emotional, political, financial and inertial objections to change through the steady accumulation of evidence to the point where no reasonable doubt can remain. But it is the job of non-scientists to say, oh yes, but what do we mean by reasonable? This is all just a question of semantics. And carry on bullshitting like that for another few decades until the first really big chunk of the Antarctic lands in the sea and a really big city gets permanently flooded, at which point, fair enough, the game's up. But until that time, ladies and gentlemen, we do not need to listen to the predictions of so-called science. Look at its track record. Science predicted the existence of a self-replicating molecule which carries inheritance. Pah! Science predicted the observed position of a star would change during an eclipse as the light bent round the sun. Pah! Science predicted the course of a comet so accurately we were able to land on it at 33,000 miles an hour. What does this tell you about science? It tells you, obviously, that science is by far the most reliable way we have of observing and predicting. It is therefore a major problem for any democratic society. <laughs> which believes that all opinions count and everyone's view is equally valid. So-called science strikes at the very heart of our most cherished belief that all shall be free to talk complete bollocks for money. It must be fought for what makes us human is our stupidity, our laziness, our greed, our stubbornness. To err is human, as Alexander Pope said. And those of you with a proper degree in English literature will know. <laughs> that is, if you're not up in a balloon all day looking for invisible magic duvet molecules. Science, because it constantly adjusts itself to the evidence, will eventually be proved correct, because it always is. And belatedly, we will scramble to adjust in a last-minute frantic rush, because we always do. Why humans are like this, we do not know. And if so-called science was any use, someone would have found out. Thank you very much. If you're getting paid to advocate for the destruction of the planet, shouldn't you let people know? The Washington Post apparently doesn't think so. The Post regularly publishes columns by Ed Rogers, a veteran of the Reagan-Bush administration turned lobbyist. Rogers' April 20th offering was an attack on Barack Obama for thinking that global warming is important. 
writes Rogers, quote, Incredibly, in Sunday's weekly video address, President Obama said, Today there is no greater threat to our planet than climate change. I say incredibly because that just isn't true. And if President Obama really believes it is, then it is time to panic, close quote. Climate change, says Rogers, shouldn't even be in the top five on the list of problems our president should be worrying about because it falls well behind, well, for example, the Ukraine crisis and concerns that, quote, the United States is retreating from global leadership, close quote. Why would Obama say climate change is our biggest threat? Rogers explains it's, quote, probably because it suits his ideology and his management style, close quote. So why would Rogers dismiss the real-world effects of sea level rise, crop failures, disease expansion, ocean acidification, drought, and so on? Perhaps because it's what he's paid to do. The Post's bio says Rogers is the chairman of the lobbying and communications firm BGR Group, but it doesn't give any clue who his clients are. Fortunately, lobbyists are required by law to disclose their clients, a fact the media critic known as At Crushing Bort made good use of. Just last year, for example, BGR got nearly half a million dollars from Chevron, though that was down slightly from the year before, and another 200 grand from American Ethane. 2011 garnered them a million dollars from Spanish methane-burning utility Gas Natural SDG, and so on. Well, when a company gives BGR that kind of money, they expect something. And it's not too much to assume that part of what they expect is an employee with a regular platform at the Washington Post, with no qualms about advancing opinions to boost his clients' profits. How Post readers are meant to benefit from regular exposure to a lobbyist doing his lobbying job is another question. But at minimum, they should be informed of the connection between the ideas Rogers is offering and the checks he's cashing. did a recent study indicating that the more educated Republicans are, the more likely they are to be skeptical of climate change. Now, the opposite effect is true of Democrats, and the results are actually pretty surprising, especially when you consider the fact that more education should lead to, I don't know, more logic, more rational thinking. Not the case with Republicans. Let me give you the details on the study. So the new Gallup poll uh, released Thursday showed a whopping 74% of college-educated Republicans saying they believe global warming is generally exaggerated. However, only 15% of college-educated Democrats said the same. Wow. So for Republicans with a high school education or less... Only 57% believe climate change is exaggerated, while only 27% of high school educated or less uh, Democrats said the same. So the Democratic side, if you're less educated, you don't know the facts about climate change, and you're more likely to believe that it's exaggerated. Mm -hmm. Okay, There's logic in that. That makes sense. The more educated you are, the more you know that 97% of the world's scientists say that climate change exists, and they have the data, overwhelming data to prove it, and they have overwhelming data to prove 
that it is man-made. That's what 97% of the climate scientists believe in this planet, right? Uh, the Republicans, if they're less educated, they're like, I don't know, man, the storms look pretty bad, and it keeps getting hotter every year. <laughs> but, but overall, still, no, we're, we doubt it. We doubt it. Yeah. But more educated, they're like, no, I'm doubling down on my ignorance. Right. I'm gonna, so, but when you think about it, it's amazing. Look at the propaganda that they did on an enormous section of the population. And it worked. It got them to believe things that, that logically you cannot believe. Yeah. I mean, think about what an insane conspiracy theory it is that 97% of the world's scientists got together and decided to make something up. Like, that's, that's a bigger conspiracy theory than 9-11 by a country mile. Like, the idea that there was this global Bilderberg combination of Council of Zion collection of scientists, it involved 97% of the scientists on the planet, right. and they all made up numbers. So they're not really telling us the truth about what their actual temperature is and why that temperature is getting higher and higher. You would have to be utterly insane to believe that. I think some people believe the conspiracy theory, and I think that the large part or the large majority of people who don't believe climate change just don't want to change their personal behavior. Let's keep it real. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me, right? I mean, you have to change so many of your habits, including how much meat you eat, in order to save the environment. And so I don't think people are comfortable with that, and it's much easier to deny that it's happening than to accept it and do something about it. Um, but the one thing that I will say is, look, just because these people have a college education doesn't mean that they're educated on science or educated on things like climate change. So I think what happens is they already have their preconceived notions, and the fact that they're educated makes them a little more smug about it. You know, like, I'm not an idiot, I'm not a dummy, I'm college educated, and this is what I know. But you're full of shit, because you don't know anything. Yeah, so, look, you don't have to know the minutia of the science, mm -hmm. right? So it, it's not like I read all those climate science reports and I can cite chapter and verse of all the different uh, dozens or hundreds of those reports that are involved. But I have enough sense to know that 97% of the world's scientists didn't make it up. And it, look, and is there a, a tiny chance that they're all wrong? Yes, there is a tiny chance. But which side would you lo logically be more likely to be on? The tiny chance side or the 97% of scientists agree side, right? And the data is there. We can see it. The warmest years on the, uh, on the planet are right now, the last 10, 15 years. You'd have to be blind not to see it. So it, Republicans have decided, and this is just an amazing phenomenon. I mean, I think people will look back at this and study it for one of the most amazing things that, have, uh, that has ever happened. You have to either purposely decide, I am going to be ignorant, and I'm going to do it on purpose, I'm not going to hear no evil, see no evil. And then there's the people who are, who are logical, who are smart, right? And it's not to say all Republicans are dummies. No, no, no. There's smart people who work for ExxonMobil and who work for Coke Industries and who get paid by them, including the lobbyists and the politicians who say, yeah, of course, I, I see the numbers. I know. No, but I don't care. I would rather have the planet burn. I'd rather have endanger the entire existence of humanity so that I can make an extra buck. Yeah. So I can win another election, so I can make more money. I'm going to be in good shape. My kids are likely to be in okay shape. I don't know about the grandkids, but anyway, the rest of you, good luck to you. Me, 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 me. I'm going to take the money. I'm going to run. So you're either purposely ignorant if you're a Republican, or you're one of the most selfish pricks that's ever existed. And if you think, oh no, no, I know better than 97% of the world's scientists, 
Really? You don't even believe that. You really think you know better than 97% of all the scientists in the world? On what basis do you believe that? No, you're entirely full of shit. I don't believe in that, what you said. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that, what you said. I don't believe in that. One dies, and I die too. So do you. A piece of you dies. And I believe in that, what I said. Oh, I believe in that. The weather this year has been bizarrely ruthless. Boston just recently hit the most snowfall ever in their history, which means this year saw more racist snowmen police officers than ever before. <laughs> California is apparently one year away from running out of water completely, which will leave their wet t-shirt contest dreadfully dry. <laughs> a dry t-shirt contest. Are you kidding me? I'd rather play Naked Twister in a Panamanian mosquito breeding ground. <laughs> Drought, blizzards, floods, climate change, is f***ed up, all right? I didn't want to believe it either, but then I saw a NASA report saying climate change is f***ed up. <laughs> sure, NASA didn't use those exact words, but they wanted to. But rather than confronting climate change head-on, it seems we're dealing with it the same way you deal with walking in on your grandpa in the bathtub by slamming the door and then sitting in a fetal position in a dark room trying to convince yourself there's some legitimate debate as to what you actually saw. Maybe it's not global warming. Maybe Mother Nature is just in heat, right? Maybe, maybe it wasn't Grandpa. Maybe it was a flesh-colored bag of dirty laundry in the bathtub singing John Denver to itself and looking at its nose hair in a handheld mirror. We don't know. We don't know. Why are we seemingly incapable of doing a goddamn thing about climate change? Why aren't we hastily turning our entire economy over to solar, wind, tidal, and geothermal energy, which is possible and would create millions of new jobs? One reason we dilly-dally is because when a furious raging forest fire or a completely unreasonable hurricane hits, the media hardly even mentions climate change. Kind of like the way we used to celebrate Barry Bonds' home runs without mentioning steroids or the fact that his head was four sizes too big. Dad, what's wrong with his head? Shut up and enjoy the game, son. He's a national treasure and a national monument. Which is why he looks like Mount Rushmore. We look away from the problem also because it's f***ing scary. Climate change is going to mean a crazy new world. Mainly... No more oysters, and they're delicious. I'm actually kidding. Raw oysters are the snot, uh, snot in a half shell. They are. I can't, I'm so angry about it, I can't even get the words out. Oysters are the jazz of the food kingdom. Everyone's just afraid to admit they don't get it. So climate change is scary, but we don't ignore other scary things. You get a disease, you try and deal with it. You don't cross your fingers and hope the Republicans are right that you don't really have a disease. I, I don't know. Maybe the orange-faced senator thinks Jesus rode around on dinosaurs has the answer. Maybe, maybe he does. What, I shouldn't trust him about my pancreatitis just because he thinks Ouija boards and independent women are the work of the devil? <laughs> what? But we look away now because this is a big problem that none of us can solve alone. We have to work together. And most perplexingly, we can't shoot this problem with a gun. What the f*** 
is that? That's our thing. One answer might be to shoot all the climate scientists who say it's happening, but that would be about 98% of all scientists, and we'd only be left with the stupid ones. Well, boss, we have about 10 scientists left, but uh, they're busy trying to figure out how we, uh, where the poopy goes when it disappears down the toilet. Uh, eight of them say poopy heaven, and two say Puerto Rico. <laughs> we also look away because we think it's impossible to fix this. Killing ourselves with unfettered capitalism is simply what needs to happen, right? This nasty beast we're up against is just too mighty. Yeah, but every great advancement in history was called impossible until it was achieved. Winning civil rights, ending slavery, achieving universal suffrage, ending Carlos Mencia's TV show. <laughs> it was all impossible. If Matthew McConaughey can go from being a hack rom-com doofus to being one of the most well-respected actors in Hollywood, then anything is possible, okay? Look, climate change is like a secretary who knows too much. There are options of ways to deal with it. You just have to be willing to get your hands dirty. Sometimes my analogies reveal a little too much about me. We need to take our communities back from the corporate sleaze because they will never push for a green, sustainable path forward. Many cities and some communities are already doing this, whether it be growing their own uh, food on rooftop gardens or taking back their electrical grid or, or, or growing their own Iggy Azaleas in hydroponic celebrity gardens. <laughs> there are ways forward that don't involve us eating ourselves into oblivion. We just have to get pissed off enough to demand them. One easy way to make a difference and vote with your dollars is to sign up to replace fossil fuels with green energy for your home or office. I've partnered with Ethical Electric, a clean energy company that makes it fast and easy to switch to wind power for your energy needs. Nothing about how you receive your energy will change. You continue to receive your bill from your regional utility, but you'll be buying 100% Pennsylvania wind energy with your monthly dues and supporting Best of the Left at the same time. Just go to ethicalelectric.com slash to sign up. They service states from Illinois over to Connecticut and down to Washington, D.C., and they're always working on expanding into new territory. So if you're anywhere in that area, check them out to see if you're covered. If you're in another area of the U.S., I recommend simply Googling the phrase buying green power to find the green power network from the U.S. Department of Energy, where you'll be able to find the green energy suppliers in your area. Again, that's ethicalelectric.com slash best. That link is also in the sidebar of my website. Or simply Google buying green power. And if you're outside the U.S., then you're on your own. Citizens around the world are rising up to demand action on climate change. In Canada, tens of thousands marched across Canada this week to demand government action on global warming in advance of a climate summit held by Canada's provincial governors. In spite of heavy criticism from the conservative Harper administration, which is trying to exploit Canada's fossil fuel reserves, Ontario Premier Kathleen win announced her province is launching a carbon cap and trade system to cut greenhouse gas emissions she explained why in a press conference if we step back and we say well we can't do this because potentially there might be an impact that might be negative in one particular sector 
That would be irresponsible. You know, if we put our heads in the sand and we say, well, climate change is, it's not a problem that we can tackle right now. It's too risky. It's too politically fraught. We're just, we're just afraid to do it. That would not be responsible. Cap and trade allows companies a limited amount of greenhouse gas emissions. And if a company has a leftover allowance, then it can sell that to companies that have gone over the limit. Ontario joins British Columbia and Quebec in now linking up to California's booming carbon trading market, which has already earned California nearly a billion dollars. Some critics have regarded cap and trade plans as a scheme, as opposed to a more simple carbon tax, a tax on emissions. There are two different systems. Cap and trade actually deals directly with industries, whereas a carbon tax deals with everybody. So everybody pays that tax, but that tax is then refunded to consumers for residential use. It depends on how it's constructed. It doesn't have to go back to households. The revenue can be distributed in a number of ways. In America, a new poll has found that 67% of those polled supported that simple kind of carbon tax in which the biggest polluters pay and the revenue goes back to households. In the U.S., a divestment movement is gaining steam. At Harvard University this week, students blockaded university buildings, demanding that Harvard University divest its $36 billion endowment of all holdings in the fossil fuel industry. Wait, $36 billion Harvard invests in stuff? Yes, not all of that in fossil fuels, but it is the largest endowment in the United States. Wow, that's amazing. So if Harvard pulls their money out of fossil fuels, that's a lot of money that will not be invested in those companies. That's right. And in an interview with Democracy Now!, Divest Harvard student leader Talia Rothstein says civil disobedience became necessary. We've been uh, repeatedly refused open dialogue um, of the kind we feel this issue deserves. They refused to engage on this issue and inevitably had to uh, resort to civil disobedience to put as much public pressure on the Harvard administration as possible. Just a reminder, it was divestments like that that eventually got South Africa to end its apartheid regime. So... We'll see if they have the same kind of effect here on the fossil fuel industry. to Texas Senator Republican presidential hopeful Ted Cruz. He voted against a federal disaster relief bill in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy in the Northeast, calling it, quote, symptomatic of a larger problem in Washington, an addiction to spending money we do not have. But on Wednesday, he called for federal relief in the wake, uh, in the wake of the floods and storms in Texas. The federal government's role, once the governor declares a disaster area, and makes a request. I, I am confident that the Texas congressional delegation, Senator Cornyn and I, and the members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, will stand united as the Texans in support of the federal government fulfilling its statutory obligations and stepping in to respond to this natural disaster. 
Texas Senator Ted Cruz has also disputed the scientific research about climate change. This is Ted Cruz speaking in March during an interview with the Texas Tribune. I'm a global warming alarmist. Anyone who actually points to the evidence that disproves their apocalyptic claims, they don't engage in reasoned debate. What do they do? They scream, you're a denier. They brand you a heretic. You know, it is today the global warming alarmists are the equivalent of the flat earthers. You know, it used to be it is accepted scientific wisdom. The earth is flat and this heretic named Galileo was branded a denier. And last week, Jeb Bush, while the former governor of Florida, his family lives in Texas, his father, President George H.W. Bush, as well as his brother, President George W. Bush. Uh, last week, Jeb Bush, a presidential contender himself, was asked about climate change by David Brody of the David Signal, of the Daily Signal. A lot of folks are wondering if climate change is real. Uh, I know you, you seem to suggest it, it is. Do, do you believe humans then are partly, if not fully, responsible for the climate? No, like I don't. I, I, the climate's changing. Right. I don't think anybody can argue uh, that it's not. And uh, I, I'm not. I don't think anybody truly knows what percentage of this is man-made and which percentage is just the natural evolution of what happens over time on this planet. I think we have a responsibility to adapt to what the possibilities are without destroying our economy, without hollowing out our industrial core. There are things that we can do that are commonsensical about this. Uh, the problem is climate change has been co-opted by the hardcore left. And if you don't march to their beat perfectly, then you're, you're a denier. You know, this is back to this, this lack of civility, I think, in American political life where even if you, I mean, you have to agree with people now 100% of the time or you're as bad as someone who disagrees with you completely. That's Jeb Bush. He hasn't actually announced that he's running for president, um, uh, but that is uh, what uh, he has suggested for the last months. Catherine Hayhoe, you have dealt with this issue of climate denialism. You dealt with it in your own family um, with your husband, uh, who now co-wrote your latest book. Uh, you head up the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. Talk about what Ted Cruz and Jeb Bush are saying and how you tie it and to your own religion as an evangelical, the issue of climate change and human-induced uh, climate chaos? Well, when we hear people saying things like these quotes that you just played, it's natural to assume, oh, they have a problem with the science. So what we need to do is we need to explain the science more clearly. Maybe we need some colored figures. Maybe we need a, a primer or some type of basic explanation of the science that we've known for almost 200 years. But here's the thing. What the social science tells us is they don't really object to the science. What they really object to, and if you listen carefully to Jeb Bush, he alluded to this, what they really object to are the solutions. Because by definition, climate change is a tragedy of the commons. That means that we don't, as individuals, have enough incentive to solve it ourselves. We require, it requires some type of large-scale action, like putting a price on carbon, which in turn requires government intervention. But you can't really say politically, oh, sure, it's a real problem, of course it is, but I don't want to do anything about it. That's very politically unacceptable. It's a lot easier to say it isn't a real problem than to say it is, but I don't like any of the solutions that have been proposed. 
And how do you, Catherine, deal with climate deniers now yourself, uh, particularly in, in Texas? Well, whenever we talk to people, I think the first thing to do is to bond over our shared values and connect those pre-existing shared values to the issue of climate change. So often, as you just heard in the quotes, people think, oh, well, you can only care about climate change if you're a hardcore liberal or if you're a green tree hugger, you know, or if you're this list of certain things. And if you're not any of those things, you can't care about climate change. So the first thing I always do is I try to connect the dots between something that people already care about, whether it's national security, our water resources, the safety of our family and our community or our health. I mean, we can connect the dots between almost anything that anybody cares about and climate change. How can, how do you deal with it in your own family with your husband? Talk about your evangelical roots and how you, um, actually believe that evangelicals, there's a growing movement of evangelicals who talk about being stewards of the earth. Well, talking about values, talking about what is already in people's heart, there's no greater value for many people than the values that come from, from our faith. So, for example, for Christians, we believe that God created the world, that God gave the world to people to care for every living thing. That comes from Genesis. And then if we go over to the New Testament, we know that God wants us to love and care for other people. The greatest commandment is to love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. We're constantly told to care for the poor and the needy and the disadvantaged and those who don't have the resources we do. So that is the value that we can connect directly to climate change because the people who are being most impacted by climate change are the people who don't have the resources to adapt. Rain, rain on my face Hasn't stopped raining for days My world is a flood Slowly I become one with the mud But if I can swim after 40 days And my mind is crushed by the crashing waves of fear So high that I cannot fall and be alone After a weather disaster, you'll sometimes read stories asking, was this hurricane or this drought or this tornado caused by global warming? It's a pointless question because all weather events are part of one global climate, and that climate has been irrevocably altered by human-caused global warming. But attempting this illogical parsing does allow you to murk up the fact that climate change is already causing real damage in the world. This fallacy found its way into an otherwise solid story in the April 27th New York Times by Justin Gillis, which began, quote, The moderate global warming that has already occurred as a result of human emissions is responsible for about 75% of daily heat extremes and about 18% of precipitation extremes, scientists reported Monday, close quote. You see the implication that there are some hot days and some wet days that are the result of global warming and others that are not. But again, all weather takes place in the context of an altered climate that changes the odds to make some kinds of weather more likely and some less. 
Well, the good news here is that after Fair pointed out these problems on Twitter, the Times changed the article to read that global warming had, quote, quadrupled the frequency of certain heat extremes, close quote. That's a much clearer way to frame the story that doesn't encourage shrugging off weather disasters as maybe tied to climate change, but maybe not. And so for that, we're thankful. This show is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find it linked on my website. If you'd like to learn more about the conservative perspective on climate change, as well as the myriad ways capitalism is in direct opposition to solutions to climate change, I highly recommend Naomi Klein's newest book, This Changes Everything. I read it. I loved it. It's available on Audible. And can be yours for free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. You might not have heard about this, but last week there was an oil pipeline spill. The reason you probably didn't hear about it is because corporate media has more or less not been covering it in any serious manner. Over 100,000 gallons of oil gushed into a nine-mile stretch of California coastal water. A buried pipeline ruptured next to a culvert that led to a Santa Barbara beach. It sent the oil directly into the water. Government officials have closed multiple beaches. This is the worst oil spill to hit the Santa Barbara coastline since 1969, when 4.2 million gallons of oil went into the Pacific. This happens to be the Santa Barbara Channel. You might not know the importance of it. I certainly didn't until I started researching the story. It turns out that this channel is where cold water from the north meets warmer water coming in from the south. This leads to a number of unusual species of animals. Any number of compelling species, Lewis, are uh, in the waters in this area. Everything from 130-foot-tall seaweed to sea lions, sea otters, etc., about 19,000 gray whales migrate through this channel at this time of year, sometimes as close as 100 feet from shore. Oil is certainly going to mess with that. Uh, yeah, oil is uh, pretty nasty stuff. This is bound to happen. I wonder if this is going to change anyone's mind about what's happening with the Keystone Pipeline and uh, Arctic drilling. You know, I, I, I assume it has to, right? Uh, yeah, I would hope so, but I'm not convinced of that. And for people who want to know more about what the impact here will be, the oil sticks to stuff. For example, the 14,000 acres of kelp that are all over the coast. Then what happens to the kelp? Well, small animals eat the oil-covered kelp. They can die or they can be eaten by even bigger animals, continuing to spread the oils through the, through the sort of a food chain, then oil also gets pushed into those rocky areas around the shore and onto the sand itself. Birds land there. That threatens the birds. And then on a warm day, the oil that's normally on the surface of the water will sink. This happened after the Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska 25 years ago, and then it gets into the sediment of the uh, ocean floor. So it's too early to say exactly to what degree each of these mechanisms will take place. Remember, pipelines are a bad idea. 
They kill jobs, which Republicans claim to care about. And the pipelines themselves are not foolproof. They spill, and they are optional. We could decide now, stop the subsidies, wean ourselves off the subsidies for fossil fuels, start adding subsidies for renewable and alternative energy development, clean energy. Let's get off of this stuff. We cannot have to worry about whether the fish you're eating ate a smaller fish which ate some crustacean, which was feeding off of oil-covered kelp because of a pipeline oil spill. We can eliminate that problem. That's an optional problem. It's an optional problem, but uh, there's just no there's no will in Congress. The, the oil companies have too much power and influence. It is unfortunate. I, I wonder what it would take. Because even when we see really nasty spills and you see the oil-covered dead animals, most people don't really change their minds as a result of seeing those images. Or maybe it's that most people just don't see the images. I don't know. Well, I, I think we need a picture of a, of a dead oil-covered CEO from, uh, from you know, one of these oil <laughs> companies. Maybe that will change things. Yeah, maybe the companies then would say, whoa, this oil stuff is really nasty. We've got to be careful of that. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's action, Tar Sands Resistance March. Now, you would be at least partially excused if you thought that Keystone was over and done with following the presidential veto in February of a bill approving its construction. However, the permit is still up in the air because final say rests, as it always has, with the State Department. And that means that continued pressure is needed on the White House. The president seems most moved by the way the pipeline would affect aquifers and farmland, much of which is located in the middle of the country. This Saturday, June 6th, more than 60 environmental organizations, including the Sierra Club, 350.org, NRDC, and Idle No More are gathering 20 buses from 10 Midwestern states in St. Paul, Minnesota, for the biggest regional march ever opposing Keystone. Speakers include Representative Keith Ellison, Bill McKibben, First Nations activists, hip-hop artists, and more. You can RSVP and find transportation at tarsandsresistance.org. Then be sure to let the president know, again, that you still oppose Keystone and any project that brings toxic tar sand oil into this country. You can call, email, and write to the administration through whitehouse.gov slash contact and tweet at White House. To support the Tar Sands Resistance March, use the hashtag StopTarSands. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If fighting Keystone XL until it's defeated matters to you, be sure to hit the share button to spread the word about the Tar Sands Resistance March via social media so that others in your network can participate too. Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd Put your name on a petition With your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud As you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow Demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference In this fickle world of change 
For decades, Robert J. Lifton has also been a leading critic of nuclear weapons and more recently has focused on the global threat posed by climate change. Last year, he wrote a piece in the New York Times comparing the nuclear freeze movement of the 1980s to the climate justice movement of today. He wrote, quote, people came to feel that it was deeply wrong, perhaps evil, to engage in nuclear war and are coming to an awareness that it is deeply wrong, perhaps evil, to destroy our habitat and create a legacy of suffering for our children and grandchildren, unquote. Well, today, Robert J. Lifton joins us in our studio to talk about these and other issues. We welcome you back to Democracy Now!, Dr. Lifton. Happy to be back with it's you. It's very good to have you with us. The issue of climate change, um, the issue that you are now uh, focusing on today, a psychiatrist focusing on climate change. Why climate change? Climate change uh, is an all-enveloping issue. Nobody can completely deal with it. It's everything around us. One can approach it from different perspectives. And because I've done so much work on nuclear threat, this seemed to me to be uh, a baseline from which to compare climate change. So in my work on climate change, I bring to bear the psychological approach that I use with nuclear weapons and make comparisons looking for both parallels and differences. And I've been doing that now for the last few years. And what exactly, Dr. Lifton, what are the parallels that you draw uh, between uh, uh, opposition to uh, nuclear weapons and the climate justice movement today? The parallel that's all important is that both really involve the destruction of the human habitat. So I call the work mind and habitat. Habitat is that part of nature which we require to really keep going uh, as a human species. And mind is what we're given in an evolutionary way. It's the hope that we have for combating climate change and nuclear threat as well. Uh, they both bring forth apocalyptic images of destroying the entire human habitat and interfering with the future of the human race. Uh, they also have a common origin. It's not fully appreciated how much the whole climate movement evolved from the anti-nuclear movement. For instance, um, Greenpeace civil disobedience at sea began as an anti-nuclear movement and some of the early voyages on which later actions were modeled were voyages by people like Earl Reynolds uh, into nuclear test areas. So there's a relationship in their origins. Uh, yet they're very different. They're, they're not the same because nuclear weapons involve these things, these devices that are genocidal in their dimensions. Uh, and uh, climate change involves the environment that we live in on a daily basis and that has been created with threat of altering the temperature uh, from the time of industrialization for a few hundred years. They differ in that incremental side to climate change, but they basically resemble each other in the totality of the threat to the human habitat.
We've been covering the divestment movement across the country and really around the world. Last month, Democracy Now! spoke to Talia Rothstein, a sophomore at Harvard College and coordinator of Divest Harvard. She'd been participating in a blockade of uh, Maine Administration Hall throughout Harvard Heat Week and explained why the students decided to take action on climate change. Uh, Our campaign started a few years ago um, to try to open up a conversation with Harvard about the impact of its investments in the fossil fuel industry. Um, we've been uh, repeatedly uh, refused open dialogue um, of the kind we feel this issue deserves um, and uh, ostracized by the Harvard administration. Um, they refused to engage on this issue. Um, for a few years, we attempted to create a space for dialogue um, and inevitably had to um, uh, resort to civil disobedience to put as much public pressure on the Harvard administration as possible. So um, last spring, we blockaded the office of the president um, as well, and a student was arrested after a day and a half. Uh, a few months ago, we occupied Massachusetts Hall um, for 24 hours and again uh, received uh, no uh, significant consideration of the issue. And so this week, um, called Harvard Heat Week, we're assembling all the constituents of the movement, students, faculty, alumni, community members, um, to show the broad uh, base of support, the range of diverse voices that support this movement, um, and to make sure that the Harvard administration can no longer ignore this issue of climate justice. That's Talia Rothstein, who is a sophomore at Harvard College and a coordinator of Divest Harvard, participating in Harvard Heat Week. Now, Dr. Robert J. Lifton, you taught at Harvard Medical School for years, and you went up for this week? I did. Uh, close friends of mine are involved in the divestment movement at Harvard which I think is extremely important, and that was an admirable statement by a student uh, who have uh, behaved in this whole process very steadily and uh, wisely and strongly. Divestment is a movement that has enormous power because it contributes uh, an ethical dimension to the whole climate issue. There are a couple of CEOs of fossil fuel groups who are beginning to say, I don't want students of the future to look critically upon our corporation uh, because we use fossil fuels. Uh, the divestment movement is gathering strength and it has to be looked at not just in terms of what it uh, denies the fossil fuels corporations. We're not about to bankrupt them but rather what it says in connection with mounting a climate movement which is taking shape. It's part of what I call the climate swerve, meaning a whole tendency toward increased awareness of truths about climate threat. And the divestment movement is right at the heart of it, very admirable. So you're talking about you're changing the moral climate. Um, just in our headlines today, I'm wondering your response to Bank of America announcing its it's cutting off financing to companies involved in coal mining. Um, the CEO of um, Corporate Social Responsibility, um, uh, it says, speaking at an annual shareholders meeting, Corporate Social Responsibility Executive Andrew Plepler said the firm will, quote, reduce our credit exposure over time to the coal mining sector globally. Uh, the move coming under a new policy that says, quote, as one of the world's largest financial institutions, the bank has a responsibility to help mitigate climate change by leveraging our scale and resources to accelerate the transition from a high carbon to a low carbon society. That's an enormously important uh, event 
because it shows uh, that right at the heart of society, the corporations that have been so complicit uh, in, develop, in, in increasing the danger from fossil fuels are recognizing first the ethical uh, absurdity of continuing to support fossil fuels but also a certain commonality you know the the fossil the uh, large american financial institutions will suffer like the rest of us from climate change because it's an all enveloping threat this reminds me incidentally it seems uh, something different but when i was active in the physicians anti-nuclear movement we met internationally with the soviet delegation and late at night somebody would give a toast either a russian or an american doctor uh... it sounded better with a russian accent but the toast was always the same and the toast was i drink to you and your health and the health of your leaders and the health of your people because if you die we die if you survive, we survive. So the pragmatic is converted or combined with the ethical in uh, recognizing that we're all in this together. Well, Dr. Lifter, when you were working on, on nuclear weapons, on opposition to nuclear weapons, you talked about the gap between the actual threat posed by nuclear weapons and the mind's perception of that threat. Do you see something comparable happening on, uh, on climate change? Yes. Uh, that's an important issue for me. Uh, Climate change has suffered, uh, the movement against climate change has suffered from uh, a lack of awareness because it's surround, it's our surround, uh, you know, it's the normality of what we live in, uh, if unaltered, uh, leading us toward catastrophe. Increasingly, there has been a change in awareness. It's what I call a change from fragmented to formed awareness. That is, instead of just vague images about climate change, we're now developing a narrative, a recognition of what it is, what causes it, what causes it, what we might do about it, so that the gap which we suffered from and still exists is lessening as we come to a closer awareness of what really uh, confronts us with climate change. That's the hopeful dimension. I want to turn to remarks made by Senator James Inhofe of Oklahoma, uh, the chair of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. He used a snowball as a prop during the, uh, his Senate address in an attempt to refute uh, that human beings have anything to do with global warming. This is a clip. We keep hearing that 2014 has been the warmest year on record. I asked the chair, you know what this is? It's a snowball. And that's just from outside here. So it's very, very cold out, very unseasonal. So here, Mr. President, catch this. Mm -hmm. So there he is. There's Senator James Inhofe, head of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, throwing a snowball in this, on the Senate floor, uh, saying this disproves global warming. When Senator Inhofe brought that snowball into the Senate, he was uh, a figure of ridiculousness. That is, uh, the climate swerve I mentioned, the increased awareness, has in a way isolated the direct deniers. It's true that much of the Republican Party refuses to say overtly that climate change is a real threat. 
but uh, they're becoming increasingly uh, uh, weaker in their claim. The denial of climate change is the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Senator Inhofe uh, is no longer a threat in terms of what he says. The polls all show that the country is moving toward recognition that climate change is real and that it's a threat to us. The real danger with climate change is what I call climate normality. There was nuclear normality. We tried to domesticate the weapons. There was the infamous living with nuclear weapons, which came right out of the Kennedy School at Harvard. With climate change, the normality is built into the whole world structure. And the difficulty is breaking through that normality and recognizing how uh, the way we live in an ordinary routine threatens the whole human future. Hi, Jay. This is Charlie from Cincinnati. Uh, I just want to thank you uh, real quick for um, sharing that clip where Professor Richard Wolf uh, interviewed Yuval Noah Harari. Basically, right after listening to that, I tracked down a copy of Sapiens, and I finished reading it a couple nights ago. Um, really, really outstanding book. And sort of in light of what Harari argues in the book, I'd kind of like to expand on the point that Ruben from San Diego made on last Friday's show. Um, he talked about how human nature is kind of one example of this imagined reality concept that Harari talks about. And it's used to, to justify oppression and exploitation and all those type of things. And I think that it's really interesting to look back at where that comes from. And I think that in, in some sense it starts with Adam Smith and sort of that industrial revolution that Harari talks about where the market supplanted the family and supplanted sort of these personal relationships and communities when this idea of seeking one's own self-interest became the um, almost a moral, a moral way to live. The idea, of course, is that it was, it was put forward that if you sought your own self-interest, it helped everybody else. And I think that really shifted the whole way that society functioned, the way people viewed their own role in society. It really seems to me that uh, when you're talking about human nature, it, it absolutely is a construct. And a lot of it has to do with how our society is organized economically. Um, it's not in our nature to to oppress people, to only look out for ourselves. For most of human history, it's been, you could say, in our nature to look out for other people, to develop um, strong bonds with our fellow man. And uh, I, I really think that's an important, important thing to understand when we talk about kind of how humans have functioned throughout history and how we function in society today. So that's just my two cents. Uh, hopefully some other people check out the book and we'll have some... Uh, some other insights to share. Thanks, Jay. Keep up the great work. Hi, Jay. This is Sally from San Francisco. I've been interested listening to your shows on education and high stakes testing. There are a few funding issues at the root of the problem, and one of them you correctly identify is the connection of school funding to property taxes and another poor pay for teachers. But I want to throw in another issue that underlies some of the basic structural problems in this country. In the U.S., we have a right 
to a free and appropriate public education or universal K-12 education that's also known by its acronym as FAPE. FAPE means that schools are on the hook to provide things that in other countries, those with universal health care, for instance, are provided by other means. One example in this country is treatment for autism that can be very expensive, the cost of which in our country is pretty much shouldered by schools. Another is the free lunch program, which schools pay for through education dollars because it's rightly argued that hungry children can't learn. A lawsuit has just been instigated in L.A. County against the school district for not providing psychotherapy to traumatize youth, the argument being that lack of treatment prevents these students from having access to their education. Fake. For urban and poor school districts like the one where I work, where up to half or more of the students have experienced significant trauma, this is a case to watch closely. If only schools are on the hook to provide services that the rest of our society has no obligation to also provide, even if the ills are more in line with medical, mental health care, or nutritional needs, then lawsuits will continue to force schools to provide resources that are increasingly costly and increasingly out of reach for our citizens even when to do so is not the most effective way to address the problem. It's arguable, in the case of autism, if providing support through education dollars is even best practices since by the time a child reaches school age, a critical time period for intervention has already passed, and children who don't have food continue to need nutrition at dinner time and over the weekend. My whole point here is that we need to think about what people in our country have a universal right to in addition to K-12 education. Health care, mental health treatment, shelter, food, a living wage, preschool and college, retirement that doesn't mean poverty, not to mention clean air and water, access to internet and utilities including heat and electricity. All this means a major economic restructuring. As long as K-12 education is one of the only guaranteed rights we acknowledge our citizens have, it will always be the deep pocket for providing all the ills and needs of society not paid for elsewhere. And finally, to address the topic of your show, unless we actually question the very structure of funding for all the things our people want and need, arguing about high-stakes testing as a way to solve educational problems is simply a zero-sum game. The teachers in Atlanta who are being punished for fabricating test scores weren't just dealing with issues of education with their students, but also issues of poverty, lack of access to health care, jobs, and fundamental human needs like safety and food safety, shelter, and food. And it doesn't take much in light of those demands to see school as the only support out there for these kids in these communities. But fighting over a diminishing pie and trying to split the pie up to cover increasing needs is never going to solve the problem, nor is measuring academic performance of kids beset by basic unmet human needs. It's bigger than that and requires more restructuring and rethinking. We need to decide as a society what we believe our citizens have a right to and then figure out how to pay for it. If we can spend billion, trillions on wars, surely this is possible. So long as K-12 education is the only universal right to be paid for through pooled community resources, there will always be legal pressure to expand the educational tent to cover those other unmet needs. And schools will be forced to deal with costs, especially in low-income areas, that will far exceed resources, especially when, as you point out, property taxes are the basis for funding. Evaluation in this context is simply never going to help solve the root structural problems and at best can only serve as a reflection of how bad and how significant are the problems facing our people. Love the show. Stay awesome.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, I have so many people to thank for everyone who chipped in to my fundraiser for the climate hike. I'm going to split up the list of people to thank into two groups. So the uh, first group is here, Anonymous. Nicholas Anonymous, Ian Anonymous, Anonymous Vincent, Anonymous Jim, Anonymous Brett, Anonymous Anonymous William, Barry, Andy, Adolfo, Lorena, Harold, Anonymous, Anonymous Chris, Maury, and Anonymous. So huge thanks to all of you. I have more to get to and and will in just a few minutes. The message we just heard from Sally, though, uh, got me thinking a little bit. It actually reminded me of a conversation that I just had a few days ago with none other than our own favorite conservative, Wade, who calls into the show a lot. But he and I were having a conversation by email, and he was asking about my position on trans people in prison. What prison should trans people be in? If uh, He was referencing uh, someone on the show who was advocating that uh, trans women should be in women's prisons because... They're in terrible danger, more so at least in a male prison. So he said, you know, if you think that, then would you think the opposite is true, that a trans man should be in a male prison, sort of intimating that that sounds like it's, uh, you know, sort of uh, asking for trouble. And so my response was something along the lines of, with the necessary caveats, they're like, look, I'm not an expert. I don't know exactly what should be done. I have a couple of ideas, some like some common sense ideas. Uh, you know, maybe that they should just be, uh, you know, separated entirely, but not in solitary confinement. But, uh, you know, basically I would advocate generally for a system that is smart enough to look at these things case by case and do what is in the best interest of each person, given their particular circumstances, you know, I, I wouldn't advocate a an across-the-board blanket solution because that's just not going to give you the best uh, sort of results. But then I said something that ended up sounding a lot like what we just heard from Sally. So my second paragraph uh, to Wade was, you know, in addition to trying to do something to the prison system to make it safe for those people, there are a lot of other things I would do in addition. So I said... I would decriminalize prostitution, one of the top offenses trans people are sent to jail for. I would fundamentally restructure the prison system into a rehabilitation system rather than a punishment system. I would improve social services that support people so they can avoid going into prostitution if they didn't want to in the first place. In fact, I would institute a universal basic income for everyone so that it was impossible to fall into genuine poverty. I would universalize healthcare so that trans people would have access to all the care they need, including hormone therapy and surgery if needed, including within the prison system, and probably a few more other things that I can't even think of right now that would also help. So this, like Sally's take on education, is what I think progressivism is really all about. You know, you have to see both the forest and the trees. Policies don't just stand alone in a vacuum. Everything works together and creates a full context for our society. So to make it maybe needlessly convoluted, I think it's like the TV show Lost. You know, if you turn on the show in the middle and you only catch one or two episodes, you're going to have no idea what's going on. Nothing's going to make sense. And you'll probably think it's stupid. 
uh, you know, plus you'll have probably heard some rumor that everyone on the island is dead anyways and nothing that happens actually matters, which will just confuse you because that's not true. But when you watch the full series and you get all of the context, you'll see how the pieces fit together, at least mostly. Like progressivism, you might find some holes in the plotline or two, and you should feel free to criticize in an effort to make it better. I mean, also, like Lost, progressivism is not going to have an ending that satisfies everyone. You know, the key to progressivism is to find satisfaction in the process itself rather than pinning all your hopes on a final showdown where we can declare ultimate victory for the forces of justice and equality. You know, we need to see the jungle, the trees, the plot holes, the smoke monsters, everything. And then we need to keep working towards perfection, knowing full well we're never going to get there. I mean, my point is that I actually liked the ending of Lost, but I just don't recommend that anyone pin their hopes on it and think that everyone should just recognize that, like any good adventure, the journey really was the destination, if you know what I mean. Also, fun fact, last summer, my family vacationed in Hawaii, and I played this song while Amanda and I were hiking through the jungle, and it was basically the best idea I've ever had. You know, uh, a certain portion of you will appreciate that. And now, like I said, many more people to thank for their donations to the Climate Hike Fundraiser. Michael, Richard, Anonymous, Jono, David, Laura, Scott, Anonymous, Anonymous, Howard, Fidencio, Anonymous, Anonymous, Greg, Cameron, Amelia, Michael, Matt, Anonymous, Anonymous, David, Becky, Anonymous, Greg, and Bonnie. Huge thanks to everyone who donated. It is uh, unbelievable. We raised about $2,000 in two days, bringing the total from we were at about 60% of our goal to 105% of our goal right under the wire. You know, we, we passed the, uh, you know, the, the end of the fundraiser, you know, like the evening of the last day of the month, which is exactly what I was aiming for. As predicted, uh, there was never any need to panic, although maybe it was the panic that was needed to get us over the finish line. It's uh, some sort of paradox we've stumbled into, but in any case, we made it. Huge thanks to everyone. Thank you very much. I'm very excited about going on the hike. Uh, I will be letting you know all the details as as that comes uh, closer. And, you know, just if you're curious, the fundraiser itself isn't technically over. I wanted to get it all done within the month of May so we could just be out of the way and we could stop talking about it. But if you hear this and you, uh, you know, want to donate, uh, you'll be able to donate for the next several months, I think. Uh, the page will be, still be up. I'll leave the link on the website. And if you want to chip in, please feel free. Now, that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.